Let's pray together. Father, there are those of us here today who are caught in between Ruth 1 and Ruth 4. Have you dealt bitterly with us? You've removed something from our hand that seemed like you put it there. All of us aren't treated the same. Some of us feel as though the Lord has gone out against us. And some of us feel like his hand is still against us. Lord, we are thankful because we see that uh, there is great glory for your name when your people wait on you to deliver us. When we wait with faith, looking at what you're going to do, and some of us will receive babies and marriages and friendships and restoration and material blessing, and some of us are just looking for the Redeemer born in Bethlehem, knowing that he is the forgiver of our sins. But we need help today. We need help today to see and fix our eyes on Jesus this Christmas season. And so we are praying that you would come and help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of Ruth and the Old Testament and the Bible is to make a statement to you and to me that God will make promises to redeem us from our sins and he will keep those promises. That Jesus is the ultimate promise. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is our hope for this life. He is our forgiver in this life, our redeemer in this life. And he will bring us one day to be with, with God the Father forever. And ever. So whether you're seeing this later this week or hearing this this morning, Ruth and the Old Testament and the story of Christmas all has that as its purpose. And that doesn't mean you're going to have an easy go of it in this world. This is the question of Ruth. It's the question of Job that we look at in a previous time frame. It's this. But why is it so hard for me? Why, why aren't all of the people of God treated the same? Why do some people walk in seeming ease and others like me, you might think, have these crazy hard burdens to bear? Why is that? What is going on when I wait and I wait and I start asking the question uh, about famines because that's a key in this book of Ruth. There's a famine how is God glorified when all of his people struggle for food for a season? Famines are sent by God to show hungry people that his presence and help is even better than life. When we're childless, when the gift was in our hand and now is gone from our hand, what is God doing? And he's, he's teaching us to wait on him and he's teaching us to treasure the gift of his, his redemption from sin and his buying back, and his love. And trusting God through death, it honors God, because we're reminded that death is not the end. 
We actually believe that Jesus has risen the third day. And so, again, all of those things are part and parcel to this text. As we look at this map, though, on the screen, I want to point out a couple things here. Uh, Obviously, Bethlehem is up in the middle on the left there, and it's just five miles south of Jerusalem. And so to this point, Bethlehem is not a key in what God's doing in the scriptures. Last week we saw, yes, it's true that that's where, uh, that, that's where a key birth took place, and that's certainly where Rachel died. That was about 1800 BC, give or take. This week, we're fast-forwarding 600 years, and now we're at the time of the judges. And so in 1300 BC or so, we've got this story of Ruth, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then two weeks from now, we'll fast-forward another 600 years when we'll finally get to the first time in Scripture when anyone ever says that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. We won't know that if we are just in the book of Ruth. We won't know that for 600 more years. Right now, Bethlehem is just a small town south of Jerusalem where a couple of births have taken place. So here we go. Ruth and, excuse me, Naomi and uh, Elimelech are there in the, the, the city of Bethlehem. And so keep the, the uh, map on the, on the screen. We're going to read verse 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, let's stop right there. The days when the judges ruled, take your finger and go over to the other page, the last verse of the book of Judges, and you're going to see why we put the book of Ruth here. It's at the time of Judges. Judges 24, 21, 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so that's what it means when Ruth starts the next sentence, is just taking that thought to the next, the next logical point. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, keep in mind, they have come into the promised land, and now they have taken the promised land, but it's going to be several hundred years before there's a king. So God raises up judges for several hundred years. Judges to do two or three things. One, to remind them God is their king. God is the king. And they're all supposed to look to Yahweh as the one who would protect them and help them and give them the borders and keep the borders. Number two, to remind them that devotion to Yahweh is the key. And so the judge is raised up to say, look to Yahweh, and thirdly, to protect them from enemy nations as well. There's a military aspect to the judge. That's what the judges are all about. Uh, but here's the, the cycle that's been going on. When any good Jewish person or you and me reads the book of Ruth, we know the days of judges are the time when the people would sin, they would feel terrible about the sin, they would experience various trouble because of the sin, including enemy nations coming in. And we could think of um, Moab in Judges chapter 2. Moab comes in and for 18 years rules over God's people in the promised land until he raises a judge up to kick him out. So Moab is an enemy of Israel. And so what we see here is that in the days that the judges ruled, 
is a key uh, to this, this whole pattern of they would sin and then they would be sad and, and upset and they would be chastened because of their sin and they would turn back to the Lord and say, please forgive us. And for a time they would walk with the Lord and then the whole cycle would start over again. So for several hundred years, it was sin, get judged, sin, get judged. And so when the reader of the book of Ruth reads that, that's what they're thinking. In the days that were turbulent, the days when Israel was not obedient, the days when there was a lot of instability in the land, in the days when the judges ruled, and you can see, uh, we'll talk about the pathway in just a moment, but you can see that in the days when the judges ruled, now we're back in verse 1, there was a famine, a famine in the land. That's the second thing that God would do. He would use natural disasters or natural occurrences to judge his people and get their attention. His intent was not to be vindictive. His intent was to draw them back and remind them, remember, I'm the God who makes promises. I'm the God who is faithful. Don't stop trusting me. Stop turning away from me. And so he would take those things away to get their attention, their attention. And so in Ruth 1.1, it says clearly, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and everyone is understanding, okay, these are unstable days and God is at work trying to get the attention of the people. Says then, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And now we turn our attentions to the map and we see what's going on. He went to sojourn over in Moab. It's about 50 miles, it's not that far, but it's treacherous through the mountain and desert kind of traveling. Some of you could could go 50 miles in a day, it would take 10 to 12 days for uh, Naomi and for Elimelech to get from Bethlehem over to where they sojourned in Moab. You see that word sojourn? That's not good. That's not good. That word does not mean they went to set up camp. The word, the word uh, sojourn there, it indicates that they were going over there to become proselytes of the Moabites. And here's where we get our first concept here. Because God is at work for the good of his people in the darkest days, note Naomi's Bethlehem pain. The pain that she has. She left Bethlehem. The house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means. Here we have the house of bread, there's a famine in the land, and, and Naomi and Elimelech flee to go look for bread somewhere outside the house of bread. They don't just go somewhere, they go to Moab, to the foreign country. When they came into the promised land years early, Moab was a place of compromise where they learned Baal worship. You can read about that if you'd like to. Uh, in Numbers chapter 25, it's a place of compromise. You can read about the left-handed judge, Ehud, and all that took place with him. But namely, this was, uh, uh, Moab was also uh, an enemy of defeat. They were enemies that came in and defeated and ruled over Israel, as we said earlier, for 18 years. 
The story is gruesome and amazing and full of crazy facts. If you've got kids, especially teenage boys, you want to go read Judges chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 and find out about Ehud, the left-handed judge, and Eglon, the really, really fat king of Moab. It's a very interesting story. We should note here, as they go to Moab, God did not call them to go to Moab. It doesn't say the voice of the Lord said, go to a land where I will feed you. Nope, they just decided to go. Quite frankly, Elimelech, which means God is king, led his wife into the land of the enemy. And all of us as we read this are like, this is not good. This is not, this is not the way God usually provides for his people. If you haven't heard the voice of the Lord, this is not a good, good plan, Elimelech. He went there with Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. So if you see the three words that talked about their time in Bethlehem, first, they sojourned. That is, they took political asylum there. They, they placed themselves under the protection of the enemy. And then here in verse 2, it says they remained there. And then in verse 4, it says they lived there for 10 years. In other words, they set up shop and they intended to stay. But Elimelech, and by the way, I think we should all say it together. Elimelech, 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 Elimelech. Okay, you're welcome. Later this week, that will come to mind and you'll remember his name. The husband of Naomi died. That's not funny. Sorry. And she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. And we've already re rehearsed. This is not good news. Moabite women seduced the Israelite men into Baal worship in numbers. This is not a good sign that they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. But Malon and Kilian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And here we get to the pain, the great, great pain. It seems that Elimelech and Naomi have greater pain than anyone else in Israel at this time. This story is about a broken heart. This story is about a woman, really, I think the title of the, the book, although it's we have to stay with Ruth, of course, but it's a lot about Naomi and what happened in this woman's life. And so as she's sojourning and as she's deciding what to do next and as she's weeping and we're going to see all of those things, uh, it would be easy for her to blame Elimelech and be bitter towards Elimelech and ask herself, did I miss what God was saying? Everyone who's reading this is saying, okay, you experienced the trouble in Moab because the judgment of God's falling on you. You experienced the trouble in Moab because of the famine over the whole region. You experienced the trouble in Moab just as the consequences of bad decision-making. And I just want to point out that in Naomi's Bethlehem pain, the scriptures, the inspired word of God says none of that. I think sometimes we overanalyze our past. 
We want to look to the past and, and press into the past and press into every decision that we've made in the past and try to figure out all the reasons why God might be doing what he's doing. We like to say things like, everything happens for a reason. Can I, can I just tell you, if you're into saying everything happens for a reason, I just really caution you on that concept. When I say everything happens for a reason, it usually means two things. One, I'm coming to understand what the reason is. And two, I'm at the center of the reason. You know that most of the things that God does in this world do not happen because of you. They don't happen because of what's going on in your world. You're not the central figure. The main reason God is doing this in the book of Ruth is because he's planning, he's preparing the whole world to receive a savior from heaven according to his promise. And Naomi is going to experience trouble upon trouble and brokenness upon brokenness to call attention to her story so that everyone will listen about a redeemer yet to come. Your story of trouble and, and the reason why God might be working in your life in the way that he's working in your life has him at the center, his purposes for this world as the main thing he's uh, 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 focused on. And it could be that like Elimelech, your story is that you just die in Moab. That's it. And if that's the case, God is faithful and God is working and God is drawing attention to himself. But we continue on with Naomi's story here and we see that in the midst of that, she's keeping her eyes on the Lord. Everything happens for a reason. The reason is to magnify Jesus Christ in all that he does and who, the, who he is about. It's to change and challenge your character so that you become more like Jesus Christ in all the way you think and what you do. Many people have wasted many years analyzing the past and wrongly assuming that they know the reason and then basing their decisions about the future based on a bad understanding of the past. You may not know the reason. And I may not either. And so I encourage you to not figure that you know the reason, but to give yourself over to the Lord and ask him to help. Look ahead in your life. So many times the answer is not in analyzing your past sin and figuring out the reasons why you did what you did. There is no judgment over Naomi or over uh, Elimelech for decisions made to go to Moab. But here in this moment, she starts looking ahead and goes, okay, I, just, I need to get back to a devotion to Yahweh. I need to be devoted to him with all of my heart and mind. And so do you see that in verse 7? Here's what happens. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she, here, here's what she heard. She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Ten years she spent in Moab. And God brought bread from the house of bread. God provided for his people in Bethlehem. And so she hears, God's doing good things on behalf of all of his people. 
God has taught them a lesson and, and they are, are uh, moving into a, a season of blessing. And so God wants to, uh, so, so Naomi, excuse me, wants to be around the people. Note one six, she had heard that Yahweh had visited his people and fed them. And here's the thing I really want you to see is that you give yourself permission to make a new decision. I think sometimes, especially when a death is involved, we spend a lot of time focused on, well, what would that person want me to do? Or, or let me make a decision in loyalty to this grief that I, that, I'm share, that I have in my life. And you know what? I really think if, if uh, Elimelech was still alive, I think there would have been a fight right here. What do we do now? And Naomi says, look, my loyalty is to God. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And if you've had an experience where you've lost somebody in your life and the grief is great and you don't know what to do next, let this be your guiding principle. Loyalty to the Lord your God Almighty. Your guiding principle of your life to make a new decision and not to continue in the ways, not to waste your years staying loyal to to old decisions. Number two, because God's at work in the good for the good of his people in the darkest of days, note this as well, Ruth's Bethlehem courage. You are not going to find a more remarkable statement of courage in all the Old Testament by a, uh, a foreigner, a non-Israelite, than you find in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Young people, this could be or should be a, uh, a, a, a uh, uh, manifesto of your life. Let's read it. Verse 16. Because here comes Ruth, the daughter-in-law. Let me tell you the story quickly. There's two daughters-in-law. Ruth appeals, excuse me, Naomi appeals to them and says, look, come back with me to Bethlehem. And in mid-stride, she's like, you know what? This doesn't make any sense. Just, just go home to your mothers and start over. You guys are in your 20s. You guys are young. It would be way better for you. You don't have to deal with this, this whole traveling that I'm about to, to take on. Just go home. And Orpah says, okay, thanks. And she goes home. And now here Ruth is with Naomi, and Ruth is clinging to her, it says here. And uh, uh, let's read, I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, said Naomi to Ruth. But Ruth said, no, no, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried also. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so Ruth expresses several important realities here. Here she is, a Moabitess, the enemy woman, and she's saying, Yahweh is my God. 
I've come to believe him and him alone. His promises, his word, he will be faithful. I have placed my faith in him. Your God is my God. I just want you to know that clearly coming out. And she's a young person. And then she makes some amazing statements of commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, after this decision. Note that this decision, listen, young people, it's about her race. It's about her race. Moabitess is going to go live as an individual in the land of Israel. That is a bold thing to do right there. And in essence, what she's saying is, hey, listen, Naomi, you came into my land and lived as a minority for a generation, for years, and we accepted you, and you, you married, you know, these Moabite girls married your sons. And it was hard and it was strange and, and all. But listen, in all of this, God became the most important thing. And that's the key to this decision. Because Yahweh is my God, my race is a secondary issue. Whether I am Israeli or Gentile, whether I am Egyptian or European, whether I am United States of white or whether I am Hispanic, in the kingdom of God, race is a secondary issue compared with the beautiful priority of God is my God. Because we're all the human race. Ruth knew she was going back to be a minority for the rest of her life. She knew it. She said, your people will be my people. Note that this decision was a, a decision of poverty. In, in essence, what Naomi was saying is, I've got nothing. I've got no sons. I've got no way of inheriting money. I've got no way of really uh, taking care of land. I've got nothing for you. And Ruth is saying, and by the way, the ancient commentaries on Ruth say she was probably the daughter of Eglon, king of Moab. She was probably the next in line to be queen over her own. She was wealthy. And she says, I commit myself to poverty. And by the way, when she went back to, to Bethlehem, she worked harder than anybody in the fields all day long at great peril to her own safety. We won't have time to look at that today, but I encourage you to read the rest of the book this week. She knew she was making a decision of lifelong poverty. She was making a permanent decision. Do you see that? Here it says... Um, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. Stop. She's 20, 30, 40 years younger than Naomi. And here's the implication. After you die, I'm staying in the land we go to right now. I'm staying. In fact, she goes on one better. And there, after you die, I'll be buried next to you. I'm staying. My commitment is to you. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me. She makes a permanent decision. She has the guts to commit. Guys, we, we lack that in this generation. 
the guts to say, I'm all in, I'm leaving everything behind to prioritize a dedication to Yahweh, Lord, of, Lord and King of the universe, and his Redeemer, Jesus. I'm willing to leave it all behind. Okay, so here's the principles from this decision. Number one, bring the immigrant into your heart. You are an immigrant. You live in the uttermost parts of the earth. Nobody is the native race. And when we get to heaven, there will be all sorts of different skin colors, all sorts of, I don't know what the language is going to be. We're all going to be immigrants. In this story, first Naomi is an immigrant in Moab, and then Ruth is an immigrant in Israel. Welcome to immigration. You are a minority. It's beautiful to be a minority. It's beautiful to have a secondary understanding of skin color and culture to understand that our first call is serve the king of the universe with gladness. Naomi is the immigrant whom Ruth loves. Ruth is willing to leave everything to come, not to Israel, but to God's people. And this is what I say to you then. Citizenship is about God's reign. Make room in your heart for the immigrant. Make room in your heart for the orphan. Make room in your heart for the foster kid. Make room in your heart for your neighbor who's some minority skin color. Make room in your heart for your neighbor who doesn't know English yet. Make room in your heart because you know what the message of Christmas is? Peace on earth. It is not peace in Sheboygan. It is not peace even in Bethlehem. Peace on earth for all, it's on all, to those with whom God is greatly pleased. Bring the immigrant into your heart. Principles for the courageous, commit yourself to the one who loves you. Guys, young people, here's the call. Make a commitment. Lock, stock, barrel, all of life, committed to Yahweh, King of kings and Lord of lords. I remember when I was, I've told this story before, I was a senior in high school and, and I had tried for two or three years to begin to follow after the Lord and, and it was my friend group at school that was my identity and I didn't realize it. I was kind of close to them and it felt very unchristian to jettison myself from their expectations and not live for their approval anymore. That's exactly what Ruth is doing. She's saying, if I stay here in Moab, the expectations of the people here are going to kill me. I'm going to lose. If I stay here in Moab, Orpah goes back and serves her people's gods. Couldn't do it. And so Ruth had to do a very difficult thing. And that is to leave her entire family, leave her old friend group, leave the expectations of really nice people. And as she left, you know what they were saying to her. Hey, Ruth, I thought Christians loved everybody. Hey, Ruth, what are you judging us? Hey, Ruth, what's the problem, man? You think you're better than us? And she had to come to the point where she said, oh, no, I don't think any of those things. But if I stay here, I will not serve the Lord. There will be great sacrifice if you dedicate the Lord as king of your heart over everything. And this world is dying for young people who are ready to say, count me in. 
Count me in. I'm all in for the living king of the universe. I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all in. Doesn't matter what my race is. Doesn't matter what my family history is. Doesn't matter if I'm adopted or not. Doesn't matter who my neighbor is. I am all in for Jesus. And that's exactly what Ruth does. Memorize Ruth 1, 16 through 18. It's more than just a little statement of loyalty. It is a, it is a song for her life. Ruth Bethlehem courage. Number three, God's at work. For the good of his people in the darkest of days, he's raising up, he is raising up a redeemer. Now, we note Boaz's Bethlehem redemption, and we don't have time to go into that, but here's the story in general. At this time, there's a custom in Israel, and the custom is this. When somebody is in a great financial state, when they are barren, when they are broken, when they've got nothing, somebody in their family steps up and takes initiative to help them. There is a, an order to this. So brothers and then uncles and then, yes, it's all male at the time. Don't judge. It's just the way it was. And so here's what's happening is there, there is a kinsman, that means family member, redeemer, and the word redeemer means to act and pay on behalf of someone who's in trouble, to purchase them back from slavery, to buy their land, to put forth resources to win their total, total freedom for help and hope. And that's what the kinsman redeemer is all about. Think of it like this. Your wealthy brother steps in and gives cash to win your uh, freedom from a great debt. That's what a kinsman redeemer is all about. Boaz is the kins kinsman redeemer. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see this. We don't have time to look at it, but I will say this. In the early part of chapter 4, there is a rival redeemer. He would be the closer relative, and he has the right to redeem Ruth in this story. And so Boaz you know, goes in there and says, hey man, uh, Ruth's here, and uh, she needs a redeemer. And uh, if you want to redeem her, you get to go first. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And can I just tell you, if you're watching the Hallmark movie, this is like 25 minutes to the end of the movie. <laughs> this is the weird, tense moment when you're not sure, is it going to work out? Because all of us want to say, no, no, not the other guy. Not the first Redeemer guy. We, he's not even named. He's not named in Hallmark movies. He's not named in this book. He's not named anywhere. Who is he? And Boaz is like, well, it's going to be really hard. I don't, I don't think it's going to work out for you. I mean, she wants to have kids, you know. And he's like, okay, no, no, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. And so here Boaz steps in, and the snow begins to fall on the Christmas festival, and everything is going to work out beautifully at the Christmas festival. So Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. That's beautiful and all, but we just want you to know that the entirety of the book of Ruth is pointing at the ultimate kinsman redeemer. So it's great that Boaz is like a physical example of this, but he's supposed to be a big billboard saying, look, look at the one to come, look at the one to come, look at the one to come. There's a, bitter, there's, a, there's a mega, mega ultimate kinsman redeemer that's not me that's yet to come. So look at God's Bethlehem grace in 4, 13 through 17. Then the whole congregation sent word... Oh, sorry about that. 
Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And that's where the scriptures say this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, a baby boy in Bethlehem. Note that the women of the town were all around because it's Christmas festival time, of course. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. Could you just turn back to chapter 1 and and put your finger on verse uh, 19? Because all the women of the town are like a main player in this story. The women all said to her, is this Naomi? Naomi, are you back? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the almighty Mara, of course, means bitter. Call me bitter. Naomi, roughly translated, means sweetie. Don't call me sweetie. Call me bitter. For the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And now here at the climax of the book, the same women of the town are coming to her and saying, sweetie, sweetie. Look what God has done. So Boaz took Ruth, and then the women said to Naomi. It's crazy, because if this book is called Ruth, and Ruth is the main person, and she's the one being kissed as the rolling credits start to come, then why is Naomi the main player? God wants to show us that he redeems empty seasons of your life. If your season of life is so empty and you don't know why and you're asking why me and how long and did I miss something? Why am I the broken one? Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 are for you, my friends. God is at work doing good things when you can't see it. Keep praying. Do not lose heart. Keep doing good. In season, you will reap a harvest if you do not faint. Keep your eyes, keep your heart dedicated to the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we think immediately, Boaz. Look what Boaz has done to come and and marry uh, uh, Ruth and and produce a child. May, May his name be renowned in Israel. Oh, He shall be to you a restorer of life. How beautiful and wonderful it is are God's gifts. And by the way, don't you appreciate them more when your hands were empty for a long season? He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you has more than seven sons. The word seven there, it's the number of completion. It means if you have the perfect family, if you had all sons and they they were there ready to take care of you, Ruth is even better than her. She loves you. But look what it says here at the end of verse 15. She has given birth to him. The Redeemer is not Boaz. The Redeemer is the baby, Obed. It's the point of the book of Ruth. Because then we go on and and say, then Naomi took the child, Naomi took the child, grandma took the child, put the baby on 
her barren lap. And there was a parade in the town. Again, a paraphrase. All the ladies of the town come around and say, Look, Hey, sweetie, can we call you sweetie again? Look what God has done. Look at how he's restored. Look at how he's helped you. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And here's the point of the book. God has made a promise. And there's a child that's going to be born in Bethlehem named David. This time of judgment and judges is going to end, and it's going to end with a very good king on the throne named David. We're eventually going to look forward to 2 Samuel, so here we go. We have this promise from Genesis chapter 3, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the enemy. We have this amazing promise from Genesis chapter 12, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We have this in Ruth, and then we have 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, you're sitting on the throne of Israel, and I'm telling you that your son is going to sit on this throne forever and ever and ever, and all of this back to Ruth, where she says, why? Why is it so hard for me? And listen, faithfulness to the Lord in the season of hard. The harder your season, the more glory for God when people see what God's going to do and how he's faithful to you in the midst of that. Keep your eyes on him and be dedicated to him completely. And here are the principles of God's grace. When God brings a king, he makes room for the foreigner. Now I want you to I want you to jot down a couple names because we're going to read them in just a second before we go. Rahab. Rahab, who was, we won't tell her whole story, but hopefully you know her story. She was a prostitute in Jericho. She is uh, Boaz's mom. We're going to read that in just a second. God delights in taking people from outside and bringing them in. God delights in, 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 in doing that beautiful thing. Ruth, you enemy of Israel, you're a Moabitess. You're one of those women that capture the hearts of our boys and, and lead them astray into idol worship. Also the most faithful Gentile you'll ever meet. Bathsheba, because of the bad work, and by the way, are you noting how the entire book Makes women the hero? Man, women are the heroes so frequently, not just at Christmas time. But look at how women are strong. Bathsheba, because of a sinful man, her whole life story, and she sinned, uh, her life story is known by all, and her grief is known by all because the child passed away. And so we have these, these women who are known for hard, broken decisions in their world. And God says, there's room in my kingdom for you. I'm going to start, and I'm going to build my kingdom on putting your life back together if you'll come and devote yourself to me. Come wait for me. Come give yourself to me, and you will see me. So it's not too soon to make a commitment, young person, to the God of the universe. It's not too 
soon to leave your past behind, brokenhearted sinner. I'm first in line there. The ultimate kinsman redeemer is not Boaz, it's Jesus. And he's promised here as the son of David, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. And you will have to leave everything the world says is valuable and most important behind to come and devote yourself to him. And you will never regret it. Stand with me and we're going to close our time this morning by reading... A passage about Jesus, a passage about Bethlehem, a passage about Christmas, a passage about lots of sinners that God brought near to him through grace. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Man, a bunch of failures. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took, took, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now after this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Father, as we consider your work in Bethlehem, through grace, you allow people to die there and be born there, to wander off from the house of bread and thank God to be regathered at the house of bread. Sinners and the broken, bad decision makers who look to the future and say, I will dedicate myself to the Lord with all of my heart and mind and soul. And Father, you are faithful to redeem us in Jesus Christ. And we praise you this Christmas season. The kinsman redeemer has come. In Jesus' name, amen.